We're going to cover quite a bit today, but we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 37. Our, the focus of our sermon is 22, 1 through chapter 23, verse 11. It seems like a lot, but it's really, it's really, um, it's a lot of writing, but what's there is not as, not as much as what is written, if that makes sense. Sometimes I could preach three sermons on one verse, and other times I could take two chapters and preach one sermon. It, it really depends on the weight of the passage, the weight of the text. All right, so let's begin reading in verse 37 of the 21st chapter. Now it says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he given him permission, Paul, staying on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity to come uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. O Lord, our lips proclaim your praise. Now, as we sit attentive to your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the Bible before us Give us understanding and wisdom. I pray that our ears would hear what you have to tell us, that our hearts would be tender to receive. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use the ministry of the word to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, we ask now that you would please be with me. Uh, give me wisdom, give me unction. My, my mind, my lips be consecrated unto you. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, last we left off, was nearly killed. He was rushed in by a mob of angry Jews. And it's sort of like if I could tell you, this is what happened on last week's episode. Paul was nearly beaten within an inch of his life uh, when some Jews from Asia, Ephesus that is, saw him and realized this was the same Paul who had been preaching and teaching in the hall of Tyrannus for three years and they were enraged. Remember, Paul is persona non grata. He's in Jerusalem. He didn't have the warmest of welcomes from the church in Jerusalem. The Jews in the church there are skeptical of him. The Jews from Asia don't like him. In fact, he's kind of made enemies with Jews all over the Roman Empire. And when he gets to Jerusalem, it's really not the safest place to be. And shortly after going to the temple, after agreeing with James to take a few men um, to be cleansed of and to uh, offer sacrifices uh, in accordance with the Nazarite vow. He is detected by these Asian Jews. Um, they call him out, and the crowd is ready to lynch him, more or less, at which point it drew the attention of the Roman tribune, uh, whose name was Claudius Lysias, and uh, immediately he comes out with uh, some of the um, uh, soldiers and, and troops. Uh, we see centurions are brought out. There is a large contingent, not some, but rather large contingent 
of Roman soldiers that come out and rescue Paul. They rescue Paul and they bring him into the fortress of Antonia, uh, where he is now in safety. However, uh, Claudius Lysias, who is the Roman tribune, is baffled. What is this big upheaval? Romans do not like riots. And usually when there's a riot in a Roman city, it ends with a lot of bloodshed and crucifixions. And so Lysias um, knows that if it gets, word gets back to Rome that there's a riot, it could mean his head. And so therefore he's responsible for keeping the order and he wants to know what's going on. Immediately he um, approaches Paul and Paul, he, it, it, it is, because he speaks Greek, Lysias thinks he is um, the Egyptian. Now who's the Egyptian here? The Egyptian, in, in reference here, uh, just to give you a little background, and I know we're just jumping into this. I, I don't have much to say in terms of giving you um, an illustration. We're jumping right into the text. I want to give you the background of what's going, in, going on here. So immediately, um, he is interviewed by Lysias, and Lysias wants to know, are you the Egyptian um, who stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Josephus tells us who this Egyptian was. He was um, an Egyptian Jew, and he was a terrorist. He was a terrorist who was known for leading the Sakari. I spoke a little bit about that last week. The Sakari were a group of terrorists and assassins who were known to target certain individuals in large crowds. Uh, the word Sakari comes from the word dagger. They would carry short daggers, and while they were in the midst of a crowd, they would basically stab you in your gut and kill you and they would move so quick, no one would know who did it. And so they, they invoked terror and fear into people. Now this Egyptian who led this uh, contingent of Sakari wanted to overthrow Rome and, uh, and led a revolt against the Roman government in Jerusalem. It failed, um, and they were chased out of Jerusalem. Several of the Sakari were killed. Some of them were imprisoned, and some of them escaped. Uh, the leader, who we do not know the name, but he was Egyptian, uh, got away, and nobody ever knew if he survived or not. So, of course, with all the ruckus going on, Lysias is concerned, is this Egyptian terrorist, is this another upheaval? In other words, do I have a problem on my hands? Paul says, listen, don't worry about it. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a no obscure city. Cilicia uh, was a region um, that was known for some of the greatest universities in the Roman Empire, Paul is an educated man, which is why he speaks Greek. Paul is highly educated, both from a Roman perspective and from a Jewish perspective, as we'll see. Um, and he is from Tarsus. Tarsus was uh, the area where many Jews had uh, were engaged in the trade of tent making, like Paul was. Those tents were made for the Roman military. And so many of those Jews who made tents for the Roman army were given Roman citizenship, and as we see later, Paul invokes his Roman citizenship, which he inherited by birthright from his father. So his father was also a tent maker. But Paul is, is, is living in this world where he really is a dual citizen. He's straddling two worlds. He has Roman credentials. He's a Roman citizen, and he's a, he's a Jew. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel, and all of these things come together at this crossroads here where Paul now is under arrest. The Jews want him dead. The Romans want to know what's going on, and this begins the trial phase of the book of Acts. 
For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at three successive trials. First, the trials of the Jews, then the trials of Felix and Festus, and then uh, finally the trial of Herod Agrippa, and on Paul goes to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. The big thing that we have to see here, it is not Paul who is on trial, although he is the person, but in fact it is the gospel that's on trial. It is Christ who is on trial. And Paul is being called to give a testimony, to testify and be a witness for Christ. Paul is not the defendant. Paul is the witness. And in this courtroom drama that will unfold over the next several weeks, Paul gives a defense, an ardent defense, as an attorney representing the Lord Jesus Christ. So this first trial comes before his own people, the Jews. What are their accusation? What are their issue with Paul? Their issue with Paul is that they do not think he is a true Jew. He's a traitor. He's guilty of treason. He's betrayed his people. Remember, this is Pentecost. This is a high holy day. It's not just a high holy day. It's a patriotic celebration. It's like saying 4th of July. Every Jew from the Roman Empire has come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. There's a, there's a fervor for Jewish nationalism. There's a fervor for this ethnic celebration of Jewish identity. And the only thing we know, or the Jews know about Paul at this point, and at least as the rumors have been twisted, is that Paul speaks against the law. Paul speaks against our people. And Paul speaks about the, against the temple. He's anti-Jewish. He's an anti-Semite. That is the reputation that Paul has at this point. And, and that is tantamount to treason. It's tantamount to blasphemy. And as far as the Jews are concerned, how dare you step foot into Jerusalem? How dare you go near the temple, you treasonous traitor? They want him dead. So Paul, speaking in his Hebrew tongue, addresses the crowd and they quiet themselves. So let's look first at his defense before the Jews. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became quiet. He said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed to Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way to draw near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. 
And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In this passage, Paul makes four arguments to defend himself against this accusation that he is an anti-Semite. He gives them four, maybe actually five reasons why he is not an anti-Semite. Five defenses here. The first one is his training. Paul go back, goes back to his original training, goes back to his birth, he goes back to his background. He is a Jew. In Philippians chapter 3, tells us he's born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, it's interesting, I read into the background of this, but in ancient Israel, when you learned under a rabbi, the rabbi literally sat on an elevated platform while his students sat at the floor, on the floor by his feet. And so it was in this context that he reminds everybody who he was educated under. And the Rabbi Gamaliel was a name that was a household name. It was a well-known name. It was a respectable name. In fact, of all the rabbis in ancient Israel, Gamaliel is one of the best-known uh, rabbis. He studied under Hillel, who was probably the chief uh, rabbi who developed rabbinical Judaism of what we know today. Gamaliel was his chief student, and Paul studied directly under him. It would be like saying, oh, I studied as an understudy uh, as a, uh, uh, under John MacArthur. Or, or, or I was, you know, I had a, a, a ministry, a pastoral internship with D.A. Carson. It would be like saying something like that. It would be like a heavyweight name. He's like, let me just remind you, if you don't think I'm Jewish, I studied under the most preeminent rabbis in Judaism. Don't you forget that. And most people who knew Saul, uh, because he was very prominent in the Jewish circles 25 years earlier, would have known that. So he's just reminding them of his background. And it wasn't just any background, but Gamaliel, like his teacher, Hillel, was of the strictest manner of the law of their fathers and zealous for the law of God. Hillel was a very conservative theologian as well as Gamaliel. Paul was no rinky-dink scholar. This was a man, in order to get an internship, in order to become a student of Gamaliel, you had to be top in your class. You had to have a, a 4.0 GPA. You needed to be a good student. You didn't just, and not anyone could be accepted. You couldn't bribe your way to be Gamaliel's student. You had to be a prodigy, someone that showed great promise. And that was Paul. Paul was 
above all his contemporaries, as he says in Galatians 1, he excelled above them all. So just in case anybody questioned, let me remind you, he says. He goes on to talk about his zeal. He says, you're zealous for the law, I'm zealous for the law. Don't you forget, I'm the one who persecuted the way, which is Christianity. Before Paul was ever a Christian, he was so zealous for his Jewish traditions, he persecuted and pursued Christians to their death. And in case anyone forgot, he says, oh, by the way, the chief priests and the and the scribes, they're here and they can bear witness. They're the ones who gave me the papers to go out and to arrest both men and women, drag them into jail, and kill them if necessary. If you guys are zealous for the law, you forget who I was. You forget how zealous I was. Philippians 3, 5 through 6, remember Paul, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is a man with a pedigree record, an impeccable record in Judaism. What does he say in Philippians 3? All which I once counted as gain, I now count as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And so as Paul lists his resume to his Jewish accusers, he moves now on to his conversion for that infinitely worthy call. But you have to focus here because what he's doing in recounting his conversion, there'll be several accounts of Paul recounting his conversion through the next few chapters. He wants to demonstrate the continuity between Judaism and Christianity. See, they see that Christianity as something distinctly different. And he wants to remind them, me being a Christian does not mean I'm anti-Semite. doesn't mean I'm anti-Jewish. If anything, I am more Jewish than you are. That's the point he's arguing here. And so he gives into his testimony in verses 6 through 16, and I'm not going to read through that all again, but he reminds them that it was Christ whom he met on the Damascus Road. It was not only Christ, but it was, and he uses the phrase, Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted to remind, these were people who were alive when Jesus was ministering. They would have remembered Jesus. And he's saying, and when he recounts his conversion story, which is true, it's a word for word brought over from chapter 9, was he say, Saul, Saul. Isn't that how God calls his servants? Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Isaiah, Isaiah. God uh, calls out, and when he calls someone, he repeats the name uh, to demonstrate the importance and to demonstrate the passion in which he's calling that person. Why are you persecuting me? Who am I persecuting, Lord? It is I, Jesus of Nazareth, shows how much Christ identifies with his church. Don't ever forget, an offense against his church is an offense against Christ. When we hurt the church, you hurt Jesus. When you interfere with the work of God, you are directly in God's crosshairs. You are drawing a sword on God. But Christ was gracious. He could have executed and struck Paul dead, but instead he saved him. He turned a terrorist into an evangelist. He took someone who should have been consumed. Instead, he was commissioned. 
commissioned to carry out his will. And so we see that he goes to uh, Ananias, and Ananias, who he's instructed to in Damascus, will be the one who baptizes him and instructs him in what to do next. But notice what he says about Ananias. A devout man according to the law. Oh, just in case you worry about my Jewish credentials, it was another very law-abiding Jewish man who baptized me, who discipled me, who brought me into the faith. Not only that, but he says, he says it was this righteous man, no, it's not only a devout man according to law, but respected by other Jews. He's making a, a, a very good case here. And he says that Ananias told him it was the God of our fathers. It was the God of our fathers who was the one who called him. It was the God of our fathers. You can't help but see the parallel in Exodus 3.6 when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, who's there? He says, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ananias says the same thing. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, verse 14, and to see the righteous one. Again, taken right out of the prophet Isaiah. The righteous one, the righteous branch. This was the term used to describe the Messiah who was to come. And you heard his voice from his mouth. And you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. He was appointed to be God's witness. And so here he wants his audience to know that this call this commission was not something he contrived on his own this wasn't Paul sitting at home saying hmm what can I come up with and start some new religion this was God's call God's intervention and finally he talks about his vision in the temple far from defiling it as he was accused in verses 17 through 21 we are told that when he went to Jerusalem after he was converted he fell into a trance. That word trance is interesting, and it's uh, translated ecstasy in English. And so Paul had, ex- had an ecstatic experience in the temple while praying. And similar to Peter. Peter had an ecstatic experience in Acts chapter 11 when he was praying in the midday and he saw a scroll come down from heaven. Now We can't really, you know, it's hard to look at these experiences and call it normative, we have to see it more as descriptive of what Paul experienced at that moment in his walk. But Paul, in the praying in the temple, and this is the first time we're learning of it in the book of Acts, is directed by Christ himself to leave Jerusalem. In fact, the Lord tells him, make haste and get out. Why? Because people will not accept your testimony. And Paul argues and reasons with the Lord. Well, you know, they know I persecuted the church. And he says, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So any issue at this point, Paul is building up his pedigree background. He demonstrates that his call and conversion and his commission were orchestrated and ordained by Jesus Christ himself, who is the Jewish Messiah. He's demonstrating that rather than being anti-Semite, rather than being someone who sneaks against the law, Paul, if anything, has fulfilled the law. He is the one who is is following the law to its truest extent in that he believes in Christ and that Christ is sending him to the Gentiles. You think the people are going to have that though? 
Absolutely not. It says in verse 22 up to this point, they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging. The riot resumed. And by the way, the detail here of them tearing off their, their garments and throwing dust up in the air, that's not there just to give you some, that they were acting irrational or tantruming or anything. This was, a, this was a deliberate, a very specific, dramatic expression of their disapproval. Remember when Jesus stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, to bear witness and testimony of himself? And he said to Jesus, he says, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am, right? Invoking the statement of God, the self-declaration of God, I am. Caiaphas knew exactly what Christ was saying. And what did he do? He ripped his garment and cried out, blasphemy. You see, it was a Jewish expression of anger and disgust when you tore off your garments through dust in the air. What they were saying is that Paul was guilty of blasphemy. It's interesting. They were listening to everything he had to say up until the word Gentile came out of him, their mouth. You see, what really was at stake here was their utter hatred for Gentiles, the goyim, the scum of the earth. Remember context? They do not like Gentiles very much. It was first the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Medes, right? Then we get into... Uh, um, we, we get into later in the Greek Empire. And then finally, we have the Roman Empire. For 400 years, the Jews have been under Gentile oppression. Jerusalem pays tribute to Rome. There's Roman garrisons in Jerusalem. The Gentiles represent oppression. They represent tyranny. The filth and the dirt of the Gentile world encroaching on us Jews. And you, Paul, go out to them and you want to bring them here and make them equal with us? See, that's what was at stake. See, the gospel is about how, how every human being has equal access to God. It doesn't matter who you are what your national ethnic background is, what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all are one in Christ, and the Jews were not having that. That was offensive. That was blasphemous. How dare you? But what they were raging about wasn't against Paul. They were raging against Christ. They were raging against the gospel. They were blinded, blinded by their ethnic pride. They were blinded by their spiritual pride. And they were blinded by their hatred for non-Jewish people. It's interesting because I think that Christians could also be blinded. We could be blinded by ethnic pride. We could be blinded by spiritual pride. 
We can be blinded by a sense of resentment. We could be blinded by hatred. And all those things keep us from the kingdom. Paul was free from all that. You see, the Jews were enslaved. And they didn't want to be free. So, once again, the Tribune rescues Paul. The Tribune must be, Lysias must be wondering, what is this Paul all about? It says he brought him into the barracks and was going to have order him flogged to find out what this commotion was about. Verse 20, and flogging was an awful thing. So this brings us uh, to this middle point of his trial. Paul is interrogated by the Romans. And, and um, we have to remember something, that in the Roman Empire, flogging was deadly. A, a, a flog was, was a little handle with little leather thongs that came out. And at the end of each thong was a piece of stone or bone. And when you whip someone with it, you'd get about five, six really harsh lashes. That little rock or bone would lacerate your skin and would be brutal. Most people did not survive a Roman flogging. And so if you couldn't get answers out of someone, <laughs> just beat them, right? You're sore to get the truth. That's one of the crazy things about torture, right? You think if you could torture someone, you'll get the People will say anything to get out of torture, right? You'll tell them anything. Well, anyway, they were about to flog Paul. This could have been the end of him. Christ was flogged, right? And in that, in that state where he nearly died, they crucified him afterward. All of this, you can see the parallel between Jesus and Paul. And it was at this point that Paul invoked his Roman citizenship. Roman citizens were not permitted to be flogged. In fact, they were exempt. And if you as a Roman soldier didn't do your due diligence and you flogged a Roman citizen, guess what happened to you? You got flogged. So that's why as soon as Paul invokes his Roman citizenship, Lysias says he was afraid. <laughs> and everybody backed off because everybody knew what the penalty was. Now, Paul could have invoked his citizenship any time, but it's at this point he invokes his citizenship and reminds Lysias, listen, you may have paid for yours, but I inherited my citizenship by birthright. He had a higher social status in the Roman hierarchy than even the tribune. So they had to back off Paul immediately. It tells us here, in verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, why are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? And the tribune came, tell me you're a Roman citizen. He said, yes, and the tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately. And the tribune was afraid, for he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had him bound him. But the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And they brought Paul down and set him before them. So Lysias has to get to the bottom of this. He's in charge of keeping order in the city. So he, he tells the, the Sanhedrin to, to, to have a council meeting. He's going to bring Paul to them, and we're going to have a trial. We're going to find out what's going on here. And now the Sanhedrin is a group of 70 elders in Jerusalem. They make up, it's 
pretty much like, think of it as a Senate, right? They're the, the Jewish uh, legal scholars. Uh, they, they govern the religious community of Israel. And um, they are made up very differently. So, so the Sanhedrin is made up primarily of Sadducees. The minority of the Sanhedrin was Pharisees. Those were the two ruling parties. Think of them as Democrats and Republicans. The Sadducees would have been more the liberal. They would have been more the Democrats. Um, they, they didn't really believe in the full Old Testament. They believed in the Torah, but they believed everything else was not written or inspired by God. They didn't believe the canon of the prophets and the Psalms. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. And they certainly did not believe in the resurrection. They were very friendly with Rome. They believed that the Jews needed to learn to assimilate and get along with uh, the rest of the Roman Empire. And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were more the conservatives. They were more the Republicans. And, and they, they were very, they were strictly, you know, biblical Bible people. They, they were Orthodox Jews. Uh, they believed in the whole canon of the Old Testament. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. Uh, but they were a minority party. They were the scholars, the theologians. Uh, they were the ones who were the scribes who copied scriptures of the Old Testament. So you have the Sadducees. They're more the politicians. They're savvy. They're worldly. You have the, the, the Pharisees. They're more the scribes. They're more the orthodox religious Jews. Um, and the Sadducees make up a majority. And then you have the chief priests and you have the high priest. And they're just utterly corrupt. And we're, we're introduced to Ananias again. Just to give you a little background, Ananias has been a chief priest. He's the high, been the high priest for a very long time. He was the high priest who oversaw the trial of Jesus. Caiaphas was his son-in-law, who was, who was sort of like a, a proxy uh, uh, priest at the time. But Ananias is like the godfather. He's like Marlon Brando. And, and he has, he has uh, and we know about his corruption because Josephus the Roman historian tells us about him, that he had his hand in every corrupt scheme in Jerusalem. When Jesus overturned the money tables, that was Ananias' scheme. Ananias had turned the whole temple system into a money-making scheme. He was the one who pilfered the funds from the tithes for the priests to pay for his own lavish lifestyle. The guy was in bed with the Romans, and he kept everything steady for a very long time. This was a very corrupt individual. Now imagine your poem being brought before trial before these men. What a sham. Paul certainly knew how it went with Jesus. It's a kangaroo court. There's no fair trial. There's no hearing here. It's rigged. So look at verse 23. Chapter 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul comes and he looks them dead in the eye. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. This is his opening statement. But before he can get another word in, look what happens. Verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? 
And Paul said, oh, I, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. This is the first of two incidents that take place in this trial. Ananias had no patience for Paul. He did not want to hear anything Paul had to say. Ananias was the one who authorized Paul and gave him papers 25 years earlier to put an end to the church, to stop Christianity. And now he stands before the council preaching the gospel. Ananias is enraged. How dare you come to this court, Paul? We send you to exterminate Christianity. You're expanding it? And he orders him struck in the face. And Paul responds with great anger. I guess the question is, why did Paul respond this way? And wasn't it Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure? Why did Paul respond in such an angry manner? I don't like to think about this too harder than to say Paul is Paul. He's human. He's with a nature like ours. When Christ was struck, when they plucked his beard out and spit on his face and said, prophesy, who struck you? Remember the Lord, he reviled not. Christ is the spotless lamb. And up to this point, the parallel diverges because we see that although Paul is a man who is following Christ, he's still a man. And he probably responded in a way we would respond in such a case. He knew how filthy and corrupt Ananias was. The bigger question is, the bigger question is at this point, is why when he was rebuked for reviling the high priest, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know he was the high priest. Did he really not know Ananias was the high priest? There's several explanations as to what's going on here. One could be, Paul really doesn't know that Ananias was there. There's a big crowd. Most scholars agree that Paul was partially blind. It could have been that Ananias was disrobed and all he saw was a white figure. And so he said, oh, you know, you whitewashed tomb. And he genuinely didn't know that Ananias said it. I I don't believe that. The law did forbid to speak evil of your rulers. But I think it's deeper than that. I think Paul was being sarcastic. And John Calvin takes this point of view. I think John Calvin say, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest. In other words, how could someone as wretched as you even be the high priest? You're not even suited for this office. You're not even a Levite. His apology was riddled in sarcasm. He knew Ananias was a filthy, corrupt man. And so then it goes to the trial in verse 6. And when Paul perceived one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It's with respect to the hope when the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. And the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there was a great clamor, an upheaval, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, 
the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul's perceptive. There's no fair trial here. And so he does what a very clever person would do. He sees the division within the group and he sets them against each other. He figures at least there are some Pharisees that will be sympathetic to his cause. He's a former Pharisee himself. And it just shows at this point in Israel's history how, how passionate they are in their disagreements. What led up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was that the nation was tearing itself apart before Rome did. They were killing each other. There was such a divide among the Jews. And they were at each other's throat. A simple debate like this turned due to a violent upheaval amongst the religious leaders. They were literally beating each other up and they were going to kill Paul if they could. Paul saw this as an opportunity to get out of this trial. He knew they weren't going to listen to anything he had to say. Some say, is he justified in using such tactics? Paul knew the cards were stacked against him, and he was right. He used it as a diversion to delay the inevitable, his death. Simply said, his hour had not yet come. And the confirmation of this is in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Paul's hour had not yet come. Christ had more work for him to do. Let me conclude by saying this. There's a lot we looked at going on here. It's Paul on trial, and you, could, you can't help but to see the parallel of Christ, just as Christ went through a trial before the Jews in the Sanhedrin, and as he went on trial before Pontius Pilate, Paul is is also being tried and tested. But you see, like I said from the beginning, it was not Paul who was on trial. It was the gospel on trial. It was, it was Christ who was on trial, and Jesus was his witness. You see, every time we are persecuted for our faith, it's not us who are on trial, it's Jesus who's on trial. Jesus said, they hate you because they hate me. If Paul never converted to Christianity, if Paul just kept his place within the ranks of Judaism, nobody would have bothered him. They would have celebrated him when he came to town. But because he surrendered his life to Christ, because he counted all that fame, that Jewish fame as worthless, as dung, and now had embraced the infinite value of serving Christ, all the people who once loved him want him dead. Remember what Jesus said. If you follow me, even the members of your own household will become your enemies. A father will be against his son and a mother against her daughter. Even your own household. A prophet is never received by his own. But Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of salvation to those who believe. It's the gospel that calls unworthy sinners to find redemption of whom Paul was chief. It's the gospel that unites all human beings, regardless of who you are, 
as one in Christ. Nothing is more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ. No message, no, there is no power in the earth that can do what the gospel does. And that's why men are afraid of it. That's why people feel threatened by it. Why else would the communist regimes of the Soviet Union, why else would the communist regimes of China and, and, and Cambodia and Vietnam and other countries be so dead set against Christianity because it's a threat to the world powers. The gospel's more powerful than any system in the world. And people are threatened by it. We learn something here, though, is that when we are tested, when we are tried, to stay faithful. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 3, 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Just as Paul was making a defense in Apologia, be prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Be ready. Paul was ready to make a defense of his Christian faith. Are you ready? If you were really put on trial, if you were put to the test, if someone asked you, why are you a Christian? And why should we not kill you? You're a traitor. Would you be ready to give a defense for the gospel? Think about that. You know part of the reason why I want to do a systematic theology class? So that you could give a defense for your faith. And finally, there's one last thing I want to look at. Paul was clearly straddling between two different worlds. In one sense, he's a Roman citizen. He's a man of the world. In another sense, he's a deeply committed Jew with deep ethnic, national, and religious heritage. Paul was the perfect man God chose to bring the gospel to the world. He knew the Bible better than anyone, and he knew the Roman world better than anyone. You know, Jesus tells us to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. We are between two worlds as well. We have to, we have to balance out our, our Christian identity and live in a world that's godless. It's not always easy. Paul demonstrates to us how to straddle that world. And I think to understand that is to understand Paul's priority in, who he, in his identity. You see, his Jewish identity wasn't chief. His ethnic identity wasn't chief. And his Roman identity wasn't chief, right? What really bound up Paul and consumed him was his identity in Christ. In chapter 23, verse 1, just reverse a little. In his opening statement at the Sanhedrin trial, he says, I have lived my life in a good, clear conscience to this day. That phrase, I have lived my life. I have lived my life is a, is a very unique phrase in Greek. The phrase in Greek is, it is uh, 
politumai, or uh, politumai. I guess that's the best way I could pronounce it. My Greek's a little rusty. You see, polit, polit or you know, polis, where it gets city. Um, and this term is sometimes translated, this word in Greek is sometimes translated citizenship. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3.21, our citizenship is in heaven. You might be American citizens, and some of you might have even dual citizenship. We might have ethnic identities, but our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate identity is in heaven, hidden with Christ. You see, given the context of his trial before the Sanhedrin, when Paul says this phrase, I have lived my life, that same phrase he uses in Philippians 1.27 when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the way we live our life should reflect those who are citizens of heaven. Paul's motivating factor in life, what, what dominated him, what, what pretty much colored his life and what, what directed his, the way he lived his life was the gospel. The Puritans had a saying for this in Latin. In, it is subspecie eternitatis. Subspecie eternitatis. It's one of Pastor Paul's favorite sayings, living in the light of eternity. Paul lived his life in the light of eternity. Straddling between the Roman Empire and Jerusalem, he walks into there as a child of God at a citizen of heaven, knowing he's representing Jesus Christ. Let that be a lesson to us today. As we straddle between two worlds, let us live in the light of eternity with a clear conscience as witnesses for Jesus Christ.